There's a powerful quote that I've shared before. The quote comes from 19th century German professor and philosopher and social critic, Friedrich Nietzsche. It goes like this. Show me that you are redeemed, and I'll believe in your Redeemer. If you look up Nietzsche quotes, he has lots of good ones. Like this. Become who you are. Or this one, and the music folks would like this. Without music, life would be a mistake. Or this. He who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow. And this is one for people who like to dance. Those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. And then this one too. That which doesn't kill us will make us stronger. But that first statement, show me that you are redeemed and I'll believe in your redeemer, that quote haunts me. Do our lives reflect that we are redeemed? Do others notice the why for which we live? As Christians, one of the regular practices of our faith and life is confession, the prayer of confession. We strive within weekly worship, though we didn't do it today, we strive within daily life to be honest with who we are, to be honest and sincere about our shortcomings and our failings. We do this not to berate ourselves, not to beat ourselves down, to feel bad, we do, it, we do not do it so we dwell on our sins. We do this regularly and faithfully so that we'll have fuller, more meaningful, more wholesome life with and for God. That's why we do it. Our second scripture today is Psalm 51. And it doesn't just urge us to confess. This Psalm 51 shows us someone who's actually practicing confession in their life. We don't just get an invitation to come along and try this. We see the importance of confession for faithfulness and living. And the person practicing confession is not just some unknown psalm writer. Tradition says it's none other than King David, a central figure in the very full biblical story. These are David's words, tradition says. So listen now to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones 
that you have crushed. Rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me in your willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will, will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your very good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if I ask you, what do you know about the story of David? I bet that you would come up with at least two names. Two names that people often connect to David. Even people otherwise illiterate in the scriptures connect David to two names. One name that goes with David is a giant, and his name is? Thank you. The other name is a woman, and it is? You have it. The physical forms of those two people, Goliath and Bathsheba, could not be more different. Goliath, an ugly, cruel, warrior, giant. That's his depiction. And Bathsheba, a young, beautiful, sensual woman. The David and Goliath story comes early in David's life when David is just a young boy playing with a slingshot. The David and Bathsheba story comes later in David's mature years when he's in his prime and when he's established himself as a courageous leader, king of God's people. Psalm 51 emerges depicting the practice of confession, central to faithful life, confession, humility, prayer, confession, according to tradition, out of the story of David and Bathsheba. The story goes like this. David, king of Israel, has power, credibility, and fame. And one afternoon, while he's walking on the palace roof, which is positioned so he can look down on all the courts below, David sees a woman lying in the sun. She's extraordinarily beautiful. He sends for her. He takes her into his bed. He's the king. And then sends her home. Her name is Bathsheba. Her husband, Uriah, is off fighting in David's army against David's enemies. A month or so later, Bathsheba learns that she's pregnant and she sends word to David, I'm with child. All of this is in 2 Samuel 11. David, good at dealing with problems, figures he better get Uriah home from the battlefield to cover up his misdeeds. So the king arranges, arranges for a one-month leave for Uriah. 
But when Uriah comes home, Uriah doesn't feel good about sleeping in his own bed, in his own house with his own wife, when his fellow soldiers are still out fighting battles for the king. So he sleeps on the porch of the palace instead. New problem for the king. David solves this by sending Uriah back to battle with special orders to David's general, send Uriah out to the very front lines, to the thick of the fighting, and that happens. And David learns that Uriah is killed the next day in battle. After an appropriate time for mourning, David sends for Bathsheba and marries her. Who could ever say that the Bible was boring? Sounds like the latest Netflix drama that I was watching last night. Almost beauty and power, lust and sex and scheming and colluding and lies and cover-up and murder and sinister activities and everyone hoping it comes together in the end. Well, the story's not over. Everything in the David and Bathsheba story shifts when Nathan who's David's pastor, shows up and preaches a sermon to the king. When Nathan arrives, David doesn't know he's listening to a sermon. He's not in the church. He's not in a synagogue. There's no pulpit. There's no pew. There's not even a mention of God. And there's no altar call. There's no offering. There's no benediction. There's nothing about where you might find a sermon. Nathan simply tells David a story. A story about a rich man with a large flock of sheep who needs a, a lamb for a dinner that he's having for his many guests. But instead of taking a sheep from his own large flock, he arrogantly takes the pet sheep of a poor man who's living just down the street. The rich man kills the poor, poor man's lamb and serves it up to his guests and David, drawn into this whole story, is outraged by the callousness and the cruelty. And David says the man ought to be sentenced to death for such an egregious offense. And then Nathan turns to the king and he speaks one of the briefest and most poignant and powerful lines of all of Scripture. Nathan says to David, you are the man. You're the man. Here's the bigger point. Bible stories are not ever just about the Bible characters that are in the story, like this one, David and Bathsheba. The Bible stories are always about our lives. Our lives. Bible stories are not just stories to entertain and inspire us. They're a lens through which we are to look at our own selves and our own relationships, and our own circumstances, so that when we look through that lens, we might move to more wholesome faith, more deeper purpose, more courageous and committed lives in line with God, the maker of the universe, to whom we're all accountable. It's so easy and it's very common to let the message of the Bible stories just move into some general pronouncement or godly purpose. That's what happened when David was listening to Nathan. Someone else is doing wrong. 
getting all worked up about it, somebody else's sin, pointing fingers, someone else's plight, that is the religion of self-righteousness. That's the religion of moral judgmentalism. That's the religion of finger-pointing and never letting the message into our own hearts and into our own lives. But when David heard Nathan say, you are the man, there was likely a deep pause and then major, um, maybe a major spirit moment. And before long, David is speaking Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your judgment, blameless when you pass sentence on me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise. So David quit making excuses and David got on his knees. David quit giving out opinions about other people's lives and knows he's accountable to God for everything. Always. David quits thinking he's in charge. It's hard to do for a king. And he seeks to enfold his life into God's life, a good calling for all of us. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. All through the story of David and Bathsheba, God receded into the background. And David was front and center. The more David, the less God. The less David was paying attention to God, the more he was acting like he was God, acting like he could control everything, pulling Bathsheba into his own orbit, acting like a God in relation to Uriah, determining his fate. Somewhere along the way, David got lost and departed from a life of honesty, a life of obedience, a life of adoration of God and serving God. It became all about himself all about his passions, his plans, that took over. Nietzsche says, show me that you are redeemed and I'll believe in your Redeemer. Friends, we live in complicated times. We're trying to figure out what it means to be the church in this post-pandemic era, if we ever can get there. Trying to figure out what it means to be a civil society and hopeful world. What does it mean? Yesterday, a number of us uh, from this community were part of a wonderful worship. Lament and confession, repentance and new commitments related to white privilege and racism, which is so much a part of our heritage. It was difficult. It was moving. It was honest. It was hard. We have so much work to do to make progress, start owning our racist heritage, problematic relationships that are ours as white people, striving for a better way forward. 
we do all this when we see white supremacy surging in our culture, clashing with a prophetic movement that's trying to speak up for black lives. We do all this even as we confront a hyper-partisanship paralysis that can't seem to do anything except grind our lives to a halt in government. We keep seeing growing issues with gun violence and climate change and abortion rights and deep concerns about many other things. And Psalm 51, the story of David, reminds us to root our lives in humility, confession, and faithfulness. We're so good. We're so inclined to think and act like we're in charge. We can do whatever we want without humility. That our days are whatever we want to fill them with. That our plans are the best plans, whatever they might be. The psalmist says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Have mercy on me. Humility, confession, faithfulness, that's always going to put us on a better course. I wonder where in your heart and where in your world you would like a pause like this that would help so much. Humility, confession, faithfulness. When we know we need God's cleansing ways, when we know we are all falling short of God's intentions, when we live receptive to God's goodness, we can have a different and faithful focus. We can. Humility, confession, faithfulness are a long way from arrogance and certitude and selfishness, which we see so much all around us in these days. Humility, confession, faithfulness. This is our calling. We can't grow weary. We can't get burdened so much with the hurts of our hearts and the plagues of the world. We remember to whom we belong. We know that we're always accountable to God. Our lives are always lived with and for God, before God's presence, like David. And we have so much work to do, to right so many wrongs, to spread God's love, to serve God's purposes, to work for peace and wholeness in our world. This is always our calling and it's got to be done with humility and confession and faithfulness. Create in us clean hearts, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within us. This is a wonderful refrain for everyday living. It's the way of faith. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of hope. We've been redeemed. It's true. We've been redeemed. We seek to live in the world, loving and serving in the ways of the one who loves and serves so well, Jesus Christ, who redeems, who promises life and life in abundance. We know how to live. May God keep showing us the way. Humility, confession, faithfulness. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, bless our lives this day. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the gifts we need to embody your light and love today, tomorrow, forever. We seek to follow Christ our Lord. Amen.